Hello and welcome to the podcast series Raw Talent with me, Fiona Abrahams, where I am deep diving behind the scenes into the careers, aspirations and inspiration of the many talented and skilled individuals who enable the fashion and creative industries to feed our passion for clothing and product. Throughout this podcast series, I will be reaching out to the global community, looking at the industry through their eyes, asking people to share insights about the work they do, how they got started, their most compelling experiences, the trials and tribulations they have faced and overcome, who they have met along the way, the lasting friendships formed, the part culture plays in the work they do, and their thoughts on the future of the industry following this pandemic. Welcome to episode three of Raw Talent. Today I'm talking with Diane Elgar. Diane has a wealth of knowledge in garment manufacturing, having developed her career at Coulthards, Claremont, J&J Fashion, and finally Dewhurst Group, one of the UK's leading large-scale clothing manufacturers, where she started out on the factory floor in the north of England at a time where the UK manufactured locally before everything opted and went to the Far East. Diane then left the business and came back part-time, initially developing the first HR manager function before taking a secondment out to Bangladesh, where she ran HR and compliance. She has a wealth of knowledge and is also incredibly personable with a terrific work ethic. She is one of my favourite people and I miss speaking to her every week. We used to work very closely together. The warmth of her personality and her humour brings people together and it is a real pleasure to have her share her insights in this episode with the goal of bringing you a true sense of our global community and how it might evolve following the coronavirus pandemic. Welcome Diane, it's lovely to see you in Newcastle. From what and you. London, but we don't have any sun today. We've just got wind. <laughs> well, we've got sun and wind gusting oh, like oh, a holy. Yeah, me, wi- me washing's dried in about five minutes. <laughs> That's fantastic! Wow. <laughs> yeah, I have to say I've been hanging things over the banister because I'm in a I'm on the first floor and it's been the same. <laughs> <laughs> By the time the heat's built up in here, you're you're yeah. on, a, on a roll. Yeah. <laughs> No, well, as I say, mine's just, in fact, I'm surprised, I'm surprised mine's still on the line. That's how windy it is. I was expecting it to blow off, but it's still there. Whether it'll be still there when we're finished. (laughs) Yeah, because you're right on the coast, aren't you? Yeah, South Shields, right on the coast. Right on the coast, yeah. So even the day when you had 27 degrees, I think you said, didn't you have something? Oh, two days ago. Yeah. We weren't like that because the coast, the breeze off the coast. Oh. But I think we got to about 20, 21, so it was lovely. But obviously we don't get the heat like you, Southerners. No, we've definitely been basking this week. It's been absolutely mm-hmm. boiling. So I think we should start by um, telling everybody how we met. So yes. um, if you cast your mind back to, um, I've got knows where oh. that was, like 2006 or something? Yeah, it must have been 2005, six or seven. I really can't remember which it would be. But it was definitely, I started getting more involved in London 2004. 
So probably was five or six, I think, Fiona. I think it was five or six because yeah. I started working with Dewhurst in about 2002, 2001. Yeah. And I would just be dealing with Anne Louise, the creative director. And then yeah. her job became busier and busier and busier as the business grew. And then you came on board and she yeah. kind of passed it all across, didn't she? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which was, which was good. Yes. And you were part-time, weren't you, to start with? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah because uh, I still had the northeast, so I would only come right. down to London at first, one day a week. And then it got to two days, then three days. That's right. Um, so as, as the northeast diminished and uh, we, we all got sort of more involved in London, I think the most I would do would be three days in London and then work from home on the Monday and Friday, yeah? That's right. Yeah, yeah. So that was how we first met. Yes, and actually you did that for many years, didn't you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, right up until two, three years ago. I was still going to London a day a week on the weeks that I wasn't in Bangladesh, so yeah. Yeah, 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 Mm -hmm. that's right. And sort of if we rewind, let's let's start from the very beginning, sort of tell everyone where you grew up what insp- and what inspired you to work in the fashion and creative industries, because yeah. um, you've got a very interesting story. Have I? You do. <laughs> well, How did you get involved in fair, fashion at the beginning? Well, to be fair, if, if the involvement in fashion, if you like, you know, stem back from my mother worked at Woods the Tailors, so she was a tailoress back in the day, so in the 1950s, probably, in 60s. Wow. Um, so I grew up with a sewing machine in the house, and my mother sitting sewing dresses for me, and, and of course, the older I got, I wanted to turn. So I always did have, you know, I, I can remember, you know, in my teens, making little shorts for my friends and little tops and T-shirty tops and things. But it was never something that, because if you go back to being at school, you know, our careers advice was, do you want to work in an office or do you want to be a nurse? Yeah. You know, nobody told us that there was a fashion industry. Nobody told us that you could get involved in a clothing manufacturing company or anything like that. you just stumbled across it by accident back in the day, didn't you? It was luck. Yeah. So, when I left school and I went to college, I did a B-Tech National Diploma in Business. And, you know, then from uni, my friends had already started working. And oh. a cousin and a couple of friends were working in a factory called J&J Fashions, which was Jennifer Rosenberg and Jack Rosenberg. Okay. Um, uh, fantastic business to work for. Honestly, they were, they were I mean, I they, were, they were big down in London. People. Yeah, Google them. Honestly, okay. they were amazing people. Um, oh. Jennifer, such a glamorous lady. Oh, and when she way. used to come round and visit all the... We had about 11 factories in the northeast. Oh, wow. And when Jennifer come round on her visit, it was like the royal visits. <laughs> the grass was cut with the scissors, that type of thing. And, you know, and she used to come into the factory, and I can always remember looking at her and thinking, wow, I want to be her. She oh. was amazing. So when I first started in the factory, I was like, my friend had said, oh, they wanted some temporary workers to do some quality auditing checks and things on the garments. And I was like, I'm not coming to work in the factory, Alison. I really don't want to. My friend Alison, I still still see her now. And I still say to her, it's your fault that I'm still in this industry. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, so I 
joined I joined JJ Fashions. Um, I've got an interview from a Mr. Foster, and I still get a Christmas card from Eddie Foster every year. Oh, that's but amazing! Back in the day, Mr. Foster was the manager. Right. And it was Mr. Foster. You know, the etiquette then was totally different to what yes, it's like now. So much more casual. Totally different. Yeah. You know, when, when Mr. Foster's office door opened, you come on that fratty floor, if you were talking to someone, you wouldn't just cut off in mid-sentence, it would be mid-word, and you'd get back to work. You know, wow. it was it was very much like that. Yeah. So I had to deal with him, and, and he said, um, my dad waited around the corner for me, and I was told by Mr. Foster on the Friday, yes. I'd like you to come and start, and I want you to start on Monday. And I was like, oh, Monday, that's a bit early. Because at that point, I'd never even had a job. I was yeah, 19. You don't have any of time, really, do you, yeah. when you're starting out? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I, don't, I don't know if I want to work. I'm quite happy just going back and forth to college. Anyway, so the only thing he said to us, because I had really long, curly permed hair at the time, he told us I was have to have my hair tied back. Hair tied back, and that was the only instruction I had. Wow. So anyway, I, I started, and it was quite a scary, you know, all of these operators, machinists who were used to that factory, and, you you know, which canteen seat could you sit in, which, oh, it was, you know, quite a scary, scary first few quite days. But, no, it was, but um, a girl popped her head round this board where I was obviously checking these skirts and introduced herself, and I'm... She's still a best friend. I was her oh. bridesmaid and we're still, you know, oh, wow. still together all the time. And she was probably one of the most influential. One, you know how in a factory you would have the influencers and the ones yeah. that people take notes of. She was one of those. So, um, and she was quite a, her name, a big name in the South Shields sort of community. Um, yeah. So that helped me then settle in. So... Within three months, it was a three-month temporary contract. I was still working towards in three months leaving. Yeah. I was only there to get some money for the summer to go away with the girls in the summer. Yeah. And all these years later, I'm still in the industry. <laughs> That's amazing. Wow. <laughs> well, it was the case of just looking at the people and the jobs that they were doing. So I started doing the, the, the quality checking. And then at the three-month stage, when Mr. Foster took me back in the office to tell me he wanted to keep me on, and I was like, oh, I'm, that's not really in my sort of agenda to stay here, Mr. Foster. Well, why not? What are you going to do? I says, well, I'm not sure yet, but I want to finish off it. You know, Lizzie, well, well no, I can, I can give you the opportunity and fast-track you through sort of like a management training, if you like. But you're going to have to learn how to go on the machine. So I did the machining. I become a floater. I then become a supervisor. I was a supervisor, production supervisor by the age of 21. And I was the wow. youngest in the whole group of 11 factories in the Northeast. Oh, wow. um, and then obviously I was watching all the garment technologists and the fabric people coming in and, and seeing all the different roles within the industry. Um, and started to aspire to, oh, I want to be like, I want to be like Jean Main because she was one of the um, technical managers at the time. 
um, you know, and she would come in and she would do all the checks and look at the, all of the, the, the methods and, and make sure that obviously, you know, the product was being manufactured correctly. And I thought, I can do that. I want to do that. So that was how I just flitted. Yes, it was very organic. It was a very organic mm-hmm. journey because my yeah. next question was going to be, have you actively guided the trajectories sort of since you got yourself established? You've just fallen in oh. from one thing to the next. Yeah, totally fallen wow. in, yeah just opportunities and really yeah and I think I think if in if the if the industry hadn't then gone offshore yeah I think I would have carried on the technical side yes because there'd have been opportunities to do that but there weren't because it all went offshore factories were closing so a couple of the a couple of the technologists and technical managers that I knew um, a couple did go and work in Tunisia, in Morocco, um, yeah. but at the time when that was starting, uh, yeah, at that time, I'd probably only just had my daughter, Taylor, um, so at the time it wasn't an opportunity for me to be able to do, you know, the offshore travelling, so, no. so basically what has happened was when our business, JJ Fashions, was taken over by Claremont Garments, um, which was in 92, 91, 92. Um, when the, what was then known as the personnel director, which obviously now would be like human resources or what you want to call yeah. them now. Um, he, at the time, I was, was I then technical or was I, had I gone into training? But I was sort of like looking after all those 11 factories. So because when Claremont took over um, and sort of like the management team were introduced to this personnel director and the, I think the other one was the operations director, I sort of was the one that gave them a lot of um, knowledge and advice and showed them around all those factories yeah. So, of course, then this Paul Watts, who was the, the, the personnel director, started taking me sort of under his wing in terms of, unfortunately, the plan of which factories they were going to close down. Oh. So we started, obviously, the colour, if you like, and some of the J&J fashion factories were closed down. Oh. And then I know and that was sad. And yes. then, obviously, we then got Claremont, then got taken over by Courtauld's. Yeah. Um, and let me um, ask you, those old factories that closed down, have some of them been reinvigorated since we've seen the trend for garment manufacturing to start to resurrect no, move them come back? Those ones. I mean, I still, on a, it's funny, on the morning, I haven't this morning, but yesterday morning I went and done a, a couple of mile jog run walk. I can't say run because I can't run the whole two miles, but I do a bit of jogging and a bit of walking. And the way I go, because the first factory I worked in is literally a mile, not even quite a mile. On the back of my housing estate, you then go through like a bit of a fielded bit and then you get into an industrial estate. It's only a small one. And my first factory, Middlefields, with, with, oh, there was only about 130 of us in that factory. Um, and I run past there in the morning and every time I do I picture the girls sitting outside on the grass and you know and you know our hometown we all obviously Facebook social media and just about three weeks after the lockdown we had a big reunion organized we're all going to go around the pubs in South Shields but obviously we haven't been able to do with the lockdown 
you'll have to you know so no that's I think it's, yeah that's a double glazing factory now and right. the factory that we then had further down this yeah yeah interesting looking back because you've had quite an quite a quite a diverse career going from kind of the factory floor in into HR what have been the major learnings from your experience um I think definitely for uh, the transferring into the HR was very much to be able to have a full understanding of what the business requirements were Mm. to be able to then project that back down to the factory floor because I think if you if you don't communicate and if you don't allow the rest of the workforce to understand what the business requirements are you you don't really stand much chance to to be able to achieve your, your, you know and, and perform in the way that you, you need to so I think it probably is to have that understanding of the people what the requirements are and how to communicate with them and keep them very much involved um, you know and be consistent I think so that they understand what's what's required yeah, that's a very, very good methodology because the mm-hmm. more involved people are, the more on side they are, the more positive yeah. things are. People feel yeah, trusted and trust is a big part. Trust is massive, yeah. yeah. If, the, if, if the dawn trust, you know, and the trust isn't there, well, oh, everything just becomes so much more difficult. You know, if you want to make any changes, of course it is. You just get that you get those obstacles then all the time. Whereas yeah. if you if you have that open policy where, you know, you're be I mean, obviously there's information that you can't let, you know, certain levels know, but if you, if yeah, you, if you give them as, as much trust, when you then want to make any changes, they're much more willing yeah. to want to, you know, because they feel more part of the business, you know, so. Yeah. They're more yeah. understanding of why something may have come about or why a change may be necessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've certainly experienced plenty of that over the years, haven't we? As we've mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I think of all the change, change. It's funny in the in the industry when you think about it, when you think of what the industry was and you know all of that UK manufacturing and the transferring and then obviously getting all these different countries then used to the garment manufacturing and the industry. Um, you know, you just think it's it's had such change and yeah. every time you think that right, you've gone through one change, right, let's settle down and let's, you know, let's really start looking at things to improve, you know, how we're doing things and make the make this particular factory better performing and, and look at how we develop the people within it to get better efficiencies and, and make it work better. And then, wham, bam, something else happens. Yeah. You know, another big change happens. So, again, that goes back on the back burner because you've got something else that's a big challenge that you need to do. You know, and it's just, it was never-ending. So every time you felt as if we're getting a bit of a relaxed moment, never think like that. I've learned, don't think, <laughs> oh, right, what will I do? Because the minute you think like that, something chaotic then comes on you. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? You're constantly troubleshooting. Mm-hmm. What do you uh-huh. think it is that makes you great at what you do? I'm not sure I am great at what I do. Um, I think probably it's that, it's that being consistent, being very approachable, obviously. Yes, I think you're being very friendly, yeah. And honestly, 
I've never, ever treated people, no matter what level they're at, I don't treat them any differently to the big bosses, to the, the you know, the, the, the cleaners on the factory floors, you would, you would be able to put it. You know, and I think if you've got the ability to make people feel good and make people realise that you're there for them, you'll listen to them and you'll help them, I think, you know, that's... It goes a long way because you're yeah, making them feel also, Yeah, yeah. It's but the it's also, Yeah, and I think... It's having the ability to to listen and never react. Don't react to things. Absolutely. You know, sit back and, and digest first before you make any decisions. Yes. You know, and I think, you know, one thing that I do, or you know, you've got to live by your decisions. And if you make a decision and it's the right decision, yeah, happy days. But yeah. if you do make a decision and you haven't considered everything and it turns out to be the wrong decision, go with it. Admit, you know, just, you know, embrace it that you've done it, learn by it. Yes. And try and make sure you learn by it and you do it differently next time. That's right. Absolutely. Because we none of us do things 100% the right way all of the time. Oh, it's a learning curve. No. You, no. Act in, you act in a, in a certain situation with the pressures that you have at the time. Yeah. And sometimes yeah. you get it right and sometimes you don't. And so you can't you don't. It's just yeah. experience. No. I think it's also you're saying what you're good at, but I think it's also understanding what your weaknesses are. Definitely. You know, and I think some people find it hard to to know what their weaknesses are. Yeah. And I think, sure. you know, and I've I had a similar conversation with um, one of my team earlier on this morning about the fact that, you know, when I think about there was a, a quite a number of years in Dewhurst where there was nobody else in HR but me. That's right. For you know, many I, didn't, years, I didn't have I didn't have an HR team like we no, used to. It was you and me working together. <laughs> yeah, you know, and when I think oh, wow. back, you know, where now, you know, I've got I've got a team of seven, eight, including the, the payroll. Yeah. Um, and oh, what a difference having because my weaknesses, you know. I'm not the best organised. I'm not the best complete. I'm not the best at, you know, you know, recording and, and making sure that everything, you know, all the dots, I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. But some of my team, they're detailed, they're amazing. You know, so I can concentrate. Yeah, I can concentrate on the way forward. I can concentrate looking at the areas that need improvement and let them do the day-to-day things. Let them do the detail. Yeah, and let them do that detail. And, um, yeah, and, and, you know, and what, what I think I'm good at is being that buffer between the level of, of level of team where they have to do the day-to-day things, yes. you know, but being the buffer from the senior management so that they don't get the constant questions and why is this and why is that and yes. what did that happen for? What did, you know, I take that away from them yes. so they can, you know, so that they can do their jobs. Absolutely. And I think that's, uh, I think, you know, that's an invaluable, invaluable position to be in because it's, you're enabling the business to function and people to have time to concentrate on the things that they should be doing. And what they should be doing. Continually distracted because the continual distraction and interruptions that we have in the workplace actually stop all of us from being able to do our jobs as effectively as we might be able to. Yeah. And I think, yeah. The lockdown has very much highlighted that. And I know that I've heard a lot of that through watching um, all sorts of different things on TV, just having the downtime and not being continually interrupted. Obviously, if you've got kids at home, it's a bit different. But yeah, um, yeah. 
but yes, it's... But they work, they're working from home. You know, we've definitely, the country's demonstrated how many people are able to work from home yes. and effectively. Absolutely. You know, now when I started with this new business I'm with now, just a year ago, yes. you know, Which flexibility, car, working from home and... Yeah, it's it's warehousing and logistics. Yeah, um, you know, and and it was very much, you know, that was the hours you work, and you know, oh, people can't work from home, or you know, if if there was anybody that wanted to, you know, reduce hours, oh no, that's not proper because operations can't do it. Yeah, but you know, why can't they? But it's slowly but surely there's been little bits of changes since I've started, and you know, I've actually managed to drop one day. I don't work a Monday now. Fantastic, um, which is fantastic yeah. um moment I'm working them because obviously there's that much going on with all yeah, of the furlough leaves and everything but that's fine um but you know I think what this has proven is this for me the environment and sustainability is so important yeah. and if you look around the world how much the planet is breathing at the moment and I'm just hoping that's and praying right. that when this lockdown whatever it. the new normal is going to be yeah, I hope so many businesses just re-establish what their businesses are and don't allow as much of the travel. When you think about all these planes and people traveling all over Absolutely. the world, is it really necessary? Really not Look necessary. at this. Of course it's not. No. And I think meetings that I'm now having on either Zoom or Teams, you know, do I need, really need somebody to be jumping on a plane and, and traveling thousands of miles? Of course not. No. Absolutely. You know? And do I really need the whole of my team to come to work yeah. every day to pollute with their cars? No, Absolutely. I don't. So I we can do so much from home. And actually, yeah. if people are able to work effectively from home, they get to concentrate uninterrupted. They get to do yeah. work. You don't need to see distractions. Absolutely. And you come in I mean, and I do think, yeah. things yeah. as you need to, but you minimise it. Um, there are there are definitely ways that we can work much smarter yeah. and we can really protect our environment yeah. and we need to be gearing oh, up to we do We have that. to. We have to. Most. And I think oh, when we, we've had this conversation within my team and I think away from my team, people would probably think, well, HR, people can't work from home because it's HR and it's all about human resources. It's all about the people. Well, there's a lot of things, though, that HR people can, you know, we can look at the planning side of it. We can look at all of us. We can do things from home. Yes. And obviously, yes, if there's these, you know, I don't know, grievances, disciplinaries, all that type of thing. Interviews, yes, we'll do that in a different way. We'll go into the office and plan for, so if I have half my team in for a couple of days a week and the other half for a couple of days, they'll plan those sort of things for when they are in the office. Yeah, that makes perfect no. sense. Absolutely, there's yeah. there's so many ways. It's going to be really interesting, work. isn't it? Very really interesting. really interesting to see interesting. how the new normal is going to be. Absolutely, I think so. It's going to be fascinating. How would you describe yeah. your management style? How do you like to manage people? Um, just in a very fair, open manner. You know, yeah. giving them clear direction. Yeah. Um, you know, not being not being you know. Oh, sort of managing them closely and not you know sort of wanting, no definitely not micromanaging whatsoever I want them to have the freedom um I don't um what I tend to do with my team is we have um very regular get-togethers we have a one at the end of the week where we all just sit and talk and reflect on the week 
Um, I'll let them ask as much, talk about as much. They're very, um, and again, this was something recently one of the teams said, how much they just love the fact that they know they can say anything and they're not going to get criticised. That's you know, nice. and we'll work through it together. It's, you know, That's one nice. of one of the team. It's great when we go into the, because we've got one office with the whole team in there. And, um, you know, one of the one of the girls will say, right, question for the room. <laughs> and we'll go, oh, here's Steph, question for the room. But it's some, it's it's a way of us all being able to, to debate a situation together, yes. you know, and come up and, you know, but no, just giving people the freedom to be able to, you know, to be able to shine really and, and prove what they're capable of doing rather than, than being so there. Valued, it makes people feel valued. Uh-huh, yeah. And like they're yeah. contributing and what they're doing counts yeah. and they're not just oh. a number. And it also allows, because when I, when, I, when I think back to different managers over the years that I've watched and, you know, micromanaging people, you know, for one, the manager themselves, they then don't have the ability to do what they should be doing. That's right, because you know, they're, they're looking out, yeah, so, uh, so distracted by, yes. you know, watching and, and seeing what their team's doing and, you know, giving them ridiculous deadlines and, yeah. you know, it's just, you know, it's just not on. So no, just letting them, letting them do what they're capable of doing and more. That's fantastic. And how do you manage up? How do you, how do you manage the expectations <laughs> of those above you? <laughs> um, <gasps> When I, if I think about that, I have been very lucky, um, you know, because for a lot of years I've reported into either an operations director, a manufacturing director, um, a managing director, you know, so I've, I've sort of, and, and they've all been good, you know, good directors that I've reported yeah. into, um, yeah. who have probably done what I've just described to you yeah and that's maybe why I am the way they've just let me do what I do they've given you a free free reign never they've never micromanaged me um but how I manage up is you know I you you have to you have to and I'm, I'm good at being able to you know judge people's characters and 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 understand what their expectations are so it's making sure that I do understand what they require but giving them more so you know I think sometimes when you get to that level you know to rely on all of those sort of you know your next level down I think it's telling them definitely what they need to know Yes. And the good and bad. And I think sometimes, you know, my level across all those different departments, sometimes they don't tell your sort of managing directors what they should know. Yeah. You know, and I think you have to, you have to be totally honest. Of course, there's things that you don't, you know, you know, they they don't want to know everything. You've got to be able to filter what you tell them. But I think it's just keeping them totally involved in, understanding what's going on in their own businesses yes particularly um, the things that it's yes business. yeah you it's know so it's managing what they expect and it's totally understanding what they what their kpis are themselves what they expect from mm-hmm. you because if you don't understand what they need from you how you're going to then deliver absolutely you know so so yeah and it's just giving them it's it's you know it's, it's always giving them what they need on time um it's it's understanding you know so I've, I've had I've had people where you know they want 
only a small amount of detail. Yes. And they're just small amount of information. But yes. then I've had the managers who want ridiculous amounts of information. Yes. Um, and that's where you have to manage what their expectations are exactly. and keep at them to say, well, look, you know, and, and have the ability to be able to present them things in a way that they're happy with so that they think, oh, I don't need all that information. Actually, yeah, that's much better. Yes, give it to them in yeah. a concise so, manner. Yeah. And they're like, oh, I thought I needed all of that. But actually, this works yeah. really well. Yeah, no, yeah. exactly. You yeah. know, it's like that's managing directors I'm working for now. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's information that I'm giving him now that he's actually never had before in the past. Yes. And he's sort of going, oh, well, is that right? Well, we, we actually pay that out and we do that. And that's the statistics for that. And, you know, the labour turnover, you've broken down. So actually, we haven't got a big problem. You know, it's given them the information. Visibility. It's, it's yes. the visibility, the depth through the business, which they may not have had because it, unless they have somebody actually focused on that and knowing how to break that down for them and have that expertise in the business, um, until you have it, you don't know you need it. Mm-hmm. this all kind of answers my next question which was going to be what are your observations on the most effective way to be influential yeah and I think again with that it's um I think it's just again going back to that you know when you think about some of the 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 challenges and sometimes you think, wow, how am I going to communicate, oh, I don't know, the closing of a factory? And, you know, how can you turn something around to influence people so that it, you can try and turn even the worst negatives into positives? Yes, absolutely. You know, and I think it's, it's, it's probably that it's just the way you communicate with people. And yeah. being able to change the way that you communicate with different yeah. levels of people and, you yeah. know, understand that, you know, it's something that's just come to my mind that might be absolutely ridiculous but at the moment we're doing a lot of um work on all of the measures that we're going to have to put in place for when we start bringing people back yeah you know and it's and it's managing that communication with them and and it's something as simple as you know yes access and egress of course we all know access and egress but to some people at the levels that will be coming back they'll be like egress what's egress you know how so you know just making sure that you're pitching it the right so you know as simple as entry and exit you know let's not make things complicated you know but to to be influential I think it's just having to be approachable and being able to be consistent and let people understand what you need from them yeah that makes perfect sense yeah and And praising people and telling people you know when they do something good tell them they've done something good yeah absolutely a hundred percent praise goes a long way for sure just lead by example always do you know if you want it to be influential you have to be seen to to be you know to be (laughs) yeah exactly pretty much yeah what would you say in your heart the whole of your garment career experience has been your best experience out of all of the experience would it have been bangladesh Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. You loved it out there, didn't you? Uh, honestly, Tell everybody why you love Bangladesh so much. Oh, I could get emotional just thinking about them all. Oh, I, I have many fond memories of being on the phone with you. You'd ring me out of the blue. You'd be walking through the factory floor, and it's the most beautiful, pristine factory. Yeah. 
the highest, highest quality yeah. standards. I mean, it, I used to show people those pictures and it would absolutely blow them away. They'd be like, wow, yeah. that's in Bangladesh. And I'd be like, that's Juhas factory in Bangladesh. And people yeah. would be like, oh my God, that is absolutely incredible. And I just don't know where to start with it. FaceTime memories of all the all the machinists waving at me and everyone saying hello. They were so amazing. I can remember when I first went to Bangladesh. I just did not know what to expect. I know. Remember, (laughs) considering my career started in a factory with 140, 30 people. Yes, and I was on a plane going to a country. The only thing that I knew about Bangladesh was I actually had machinists on my team who were from Bangladesh oh, and wow. they were my best workers. Wow. I had Nessa Nida on my team and they, they, they'd obviously come from Bangladesh with their families, lived in our hometown and they were my best performers on the team. Oh, wow. So that was my, that was what I knew about Bangladesh through yeah. them. Yeah. Obviously, I knew about, you know, that it was a mainly Muslim country. I can yeah. remember Nessa having to go back to get married when she was very young, so arranged marriages. So, obviously, I was starting to research the place and try to understand it. But when I stepped off that plane and stepped outside and the, the, the heat and the noise hit me, just my whole senses were like, wow, what is this? I yeah. got in a car, the beeps, the horns, the traffic, you were, you know, practically in a crowded day in the it traffic. Insane. It was you think of all those conversations you had when you were in the car with all the oh. accidents and misses and the hooting. Yeah. I think I was actually in the car one day when I said to you, oh, we've just crashed into a rickshaw. Yeah, you did crash into a rickshaw. I you, yeah. I was just so... <laughs> yeah, but it was, it was colourful. The colours and the people and the smiles and the children weren't standing taking tantrums because they wanted to be on their game stations. And it was just amazing. So the first morning that I drove to the factory and I just was obviously told that there's six and a half thousand or at that point, maybe nearly seven thousand people in this factory. I just couldn't, I couldn't, I just couldn't vision it. it. I was like, how can that possibly be? I just don't, I can't, (laughs) I can't imagine what it's going to look like. So when I got there, honestly, I was just blown away, blown away. But I was also blown away by just the people and how friendly and willing and able and educated. Obviously not at the operator level. Operator level, you know, you know, our workers over there, you know, they they couldn't read and write. They hadn't had an education. But they were still bright girls and, you know, they, they were still bright you know, the, 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 the workforce were intelligent people. They just hadn't had the, yeah. yeah. There was nothing stopping those. And I think this is what I was trying to prove the whole time I was there. Because a lot of some of the management, which were from different countries, just believed that there were operators and that was it. And I kept on pushing and pushing, saying no. In exactly the same way in the UK, we had people who hadn't done great at school, hadn't gotten all their exams, but by God, once they understood the industry and understood production, there's nothing stopping them becoming a supervisor, a production manager, a factory manager even, if we start developing them. Absolutely. And that's what we did do. But yeah. no, it was just... And those managers... Honestly, on it. And an interesting observation, sorry to interrupt, would for me would be, you were the only female in management there, weren't you? Mm-hmm. And of yeah. course, you 
dealing with a, a male-dominated management team. Yeah. And yeah. so men are very bad at seeing the bigger picture very often with things like this. Yeah. We've seen yeah. a lot of that in this industry. It's not always, yeah. but there's a lot of yeah. just... Assumption. I actually, yeah. I actually, when I look back... And, yeah, yeah. I obviously had I obviously had the the two because when I first started going over there, Jewers we had thirty odd, about nearly forty I think expats who would work for the business in other countries. So we had people from Morocco, yeah. we had people from yeah. Malaysia, Indonesia, you know. So we had from Sri Lanka. So we had all different nationalities. You did because we should explain what, to yeah. you that Jew has produced in all those countries, and so it was cost. Yes shuffling people yeah. around its far east operation yeah 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 so you know so and what was you know obviously expats that, that come with expensive packages really in comparison to the locals and if you think about it if in the uk so if i went back into the uk factories everybody was british practically yeah. But if we started bringing a Bangladeshi or a Sri Lankan or a, in our factories to run our factories, you can imagine what the the the, the local people are going to think. Yes, they will be. You know, they want that they want to manage the factories. That's right. So that was something, and, and obviously sustainability. We wanted to keep that factory in Bangladesh for as long as possible. Yeah. But if we continue to have such a high cost, so what we had to do, we had to start identifying the local workforce and identifying them to be able to replace the expats. Yes. And that's what we did. So yes. when I left last April, I think we were down to about a dozen expats. That's very good. And a, a big percentage of those were were Sri Lankans at sort of a, like a manager level, not senior level. There was probably only about two senior level. And then you had only, there was only one British left um, guy who obviously, who Richard Heath, he runs and he's the managing director. Yeah. Um, so, and I think what helped me when I first went across there, because I already knew Richard and had a yes. good relationship with Richard, you know, I think the local higher level team obviously then thought maybe mm, let's be careful because Richard and Diane get on very well. So if we really don't sort of work well with Diane. So I think that probably did help me. Um, but yeah, there was massive challenges. Um, you know, the reason I went over in the first place was because there'd been a, a strike and an attack, and you know, oh, it was very, that. very turbulent. It was, yeah. you know, sort of going to a country that I didn't know, who obviously, you know, they, they would have strikes, country strikes, and cartels, as they called them. Volatile, and, you know, you're oh, oh, very volatile. Yeah. Um, we, should explain, times, was, we should explain well, the context in that Bangladesh was still sort of kind of finding its feet as a more it was an, it was like, a yeah uh, more formal workforce. There was a lot of uh, corruption at government level, so there were lots of confusing things oh. that would be happening. Yeah, and the people's way of rebelling was just to to strike and riot. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Because they didn't have the, the support mm -hmm. that they needed. Yeah. But it's gotten better, hasn't it? It has. At the moment, unfortunately, you know, it's it's very, very turbulent at the moment because a lot of these 
brands having paid the factories over there for the stock that they're currently either finishing off and been undone. Yeah, they haven't paid. So I know a lot oh. of factories where the workers aren't getting paid. Oh, and no. when you're not paid in Bangladesh, you don't eat. No. You know, it's not like this country. So honestly, I'm, I'm seeing some terrible, terrible things that are going on. So workers are coming out and going on the streets and, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're causing riots again because they've got no money no. and they're not being paid. You know, it's, oh, it's just so, so sad. Um, you know, fortunately, I mean, well, I'm saying fortunately, maybe the figures, I know what Bangladesh is like, they might not be recording actually how many de- deaths that they are having. Um, but, you know, they are on a lockdown. But obviously at the moment it's Eid. So you've got like millions of people are trying to leave the city to get out of their villages and, you know, the government stuff some of the transport. You know, oh, honestly, if I was there now, it would be pretty, pretty dangerous situation, I would think. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was a fantastic place. I'd go back at the drop of a hat if I was oh, able to. Amazing. Um, yeah, they're just so willing and, the, you know, they want to do, they want to do a good job. But I think, you know, in terms of, um, you know, there still is a lot of factories that are very substandard, um, but there's a lot of amazing factories, you know, who who do and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to make sure that, you know, they are, you know, as sustainable as possible and that they're following all of the correct compliance That's requirements of all the That's different brands. And all, all of the different brands have different standards, you know, but unfortunately what then happens though is these, these factory owners who are trying their best, um, obviously when it comes to what they're being paid for the product, yeah. it maybe doesn't reflect everything that then have to do and what their costs are in terms of getting the compliance mm. to the standards. That's- that's where you the know, brands themselves really need to look they need to take responsibility they yeah they and do. at the moment a lot of brands I mean you just have to you know you just have to research and look at what's going on at the moment in terms of the factories um not being paid um yes. and what I'm hoping for is when things start um you know starting back up again and the factory owners start going into negotiations with the buyers I just hope they get tougher and they demand more because if they can get more um, money for their product, it will improve things. Yes, it has a knock-on effect, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I think if you know, if the if the if all of the um, the retailers and all of the customers that go into those stores, even if they were just willing to pay a few more pounds for the product, in those few more sure. pounds go into these. Actually, that people would be because people, people just don't realise to, uh, they don't realise the fact. Yeah. yeah, it's just you know the average person on the street just doesn't know, and if they did know, they'll pay an extra three or four pounds for uh, mm-hmm. a nine pound pair of jeans. So oh, of course, yeah. you know, they just don't yeah. realise that um, this is happening. It's as simple mm-hmm. as that. So yes, the, the industry itself has really got to look at all of this and look at mm-hmm. how fair it's being and move away from this. Yeah, move away from the celebrity something yeah. on the day and they want it in the shops tomorrow. Yeah. The, the pressure, the pressure that that puts on. It's huge. You know, yeah, it's just, it's just it's not. It's huge. Yeah, it's, it's got to be more measured. It's got to be yeah. fairer. 
So let's hope that's something that comes out of all this. What would yeah, you say was your, your worst experience in the industry? What's been the thing that you look back on and go, oh my goodness? <laughs> oh, Fiona, there's so many. <laughs> and, I mean, I know we've, we've spent... I don't mean that, yeah, but not... Yes. Yeah. Yes. But there's been so many challenges. I probably, okay. probably the worst in terms of affecting me was when I had to stand there and announce the closure of the factory where I first started with all of those um, girls that I started my career with, you know, and and talent, yeah, and having to sit down and, you know, do the consultations with them and tell them how little redundancy really. I mean, you know, there was ladies that had worked there whose start date with the business was... 1950, 1960, you know, back to the Mary Harris days. And, yeah, so I was sitting down with ladies who, you know, I was younger than what they'd actually lent the service, you know, sort of. And as I say, that was definitely, it was a family-orientated. As I say, there's still a lot of people still keep in touch. We'll have a reunion from back then. And it's a very family-orientated industry, actually. You know, there's so many of us that have all known together most of our careers and you know it's like this big extended family um you know when I was uh when you saw um last month that my dad had passed from the coronavirus the amount of people in the industry that reached out to me it was really Mm -hmm. heartening Mm -hmm. yeah no I know it is is. and I know it's because it's the industry we've been in and and maybe car manufacturing and all those guys in Nissan I don't know are they still are they like that I don't know um but definitely the this industry's absolutely like it it is like one big extended family that's for sure it's one big extended international family it's very global you know Mm -hmm. um yeah oh that's it I mean honestly if I wanted to now if it was possible I could fly over to Malaysia and have quite a number of places that I would be able to stay with with friends over there. Then I could pop across to Indonesia, I could pop over to Cambodia, I could pop back to Bangladesh, I could go <laughs> to Tunisia, I could, you know, you, you've, I've just got people Everywhere. all over the world. Yeah, yeah. incredible, mm-hmm. isn't it? Absolutely, yes. it's amazing. And obviously with social media the way it is, I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a lover of Facebook. I don't often, in fact, I can't even remember the last thing I would have posted, but... You know, I've got a, a group of people on there that it's fantastic to be at the sea and stay connected, doesn't it? That's yeah. that's what I use it for. It's a way of just being able to stay connected, which is so lovely. Yes. Uh-huh. You know, thinking about your career, who would you say has been the most inspiring manager that you've worked for, and why? Who influenced you the most? Um, I think probably. Anthony and Paul. Anthony and Paul. Are you going to say? Yeah, because the very much, I never saw. Actually, I'm telling the lie. I did see. I did see Paul lose his temper once. Really? All of those. Yeah. We should tell everybody he was the. Was he the FD at Dewhurst? Yeah. Well, operations director. Yeah. 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 And then. he obviously was the managing director and um, never did I see either one of those lose the temper. I'll come back to the once with Paul, but they never lost the temper. They were very much approachable. Um, you know, the, 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 they were open and they, they give you the freedom to be able to, 
do what you felt was right for the business. Um, they would question. They would question a lot of the thing, but and that was where Paul's logic as well. I would I would go into Paul and say, right, Paul, I, I can't give an example, but there would be something that I was thinking of doing, or, or how do I how do how do you think I should tackle this? And you know, he would just is logical way of thinking and give me some you know positive feedback. But then he would say, but what about doing it if you would do it this way? And I'd be like. Why didn't I think of that? You know, but all you know, you know, just yeah, just being very open and I, as I say, the I took from it that they really allowed you to be yourself. So yeah, and they allowed the banter. So they enjoyed the banter. They enjoyed hearing how you yeah. sort of done, and then they enjoyed either agreeing with it or you know mm-hmm. giving suggestions. But never. Yeah. But also, it was also being it was they were consistent. Yeah, you know, so. You know how sometimes if a, if a, a director, a manager, a senior person, um, oh, I don't know, arranges, arranges a meeting. Yes. Uh, so the meeting's at two o'clock and there's going to be 10 people come to that meeting. So everybody gets there or people start arriving at 10 to 2, 5 to 2, and then, you know, an Anthony or a Paul or somebody will come in at two o'clock and then you've got the dribs and drabs that come afterwards. Yeah. Now, that's not acceptable. Um, but that never happened. But not in the not in that way of God. If I don't get there on time, I'm going to go in trouble. It, it, it was the respect. That's so nice. That speaks volumes, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Whereas in the past, where you think of other um, managers, and you can just see if if people don't have the respect for that manager, they're going to take a instead of you know you give them an inch, they'll take a mile because yeah. they haven't got respect. So yeah. I think it's respect, isn't it? It's respect, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. And who would have been your least inspiring boss, without naming names? Um, um, <laughs> to be fair... You've not had any really bad ones. No, I haven't. Them. Yeah, I mean, I remember a certain person that yes. we had to deal with, yes. that was dealt with at Dewhurst, and um, was on the periphery and caused lots of problems because of the way they were as a person. Yes, I've had some very challenging um, directors that I've worked with. However, most of which, most of which have been, you know, I've been lucky. I've been very lucky. Um, So I don't think I I could really sort of name somebody in terms of who I've reported to. You know, because I haven't had, I haven't had that many. No, Um, you haven't actually. You've had no, I haven't. Of people, you know. Not. So yeah, because I've been yeah. So no, I, I can't. As I say, I could mention a couple of names of you will know who I'm talking about. But no, in general, I've been very lucky. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, thinking about the industry and how it's going to be impacted by coronavirus, we've touched on this already. What's the perfect landscape on the other side? How do you think the industry should um, move forward? What do you think it needs to change? Mm. I think it needs to change um, in terms of the fast fashion side. It, you know, we, it's yeah. just not sustainable. No. It has to change <laughs> because if you far too much yeah. product, yeah, and the, the quality and, and you know, I'm sorry, but no matter what, you know, the public might think that a lot of these brands do do it in a sustainable way, but. In actual fact, it's it's just not. We know. You know, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, we, and I think everybody knows that. The brands themselves know that. Although a lot of the brands do try their best. You know, it's, it's, it's been... But trans- they have to be absolutely 100% clear and yeah. promote the fact that they are truly sustainable rather than pretend they yeah. are. Yeah. You know what I wish would happen? They would stop using these auditing companies, you know, yeah, you know, locally in the countries that they're in. Um, because yeah. there's so much there's so much corruption. I know. You know, and it's it's very easy for the brands to, to receive that audit reports. Oh, that fact is a good fact. Oh, it's okay, we won't really go and look. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Get out there, get out there and get somebody who understands what a factory should look like and yeah. understands when it's made to look the way it looks when they have the odd visit from the buyers. You yeah. know, it, it has to change. And I think that, you know, I think the need to start looking at the, the supply base in terms of just the what they're paying for the products um, and the, the fabrics that they're using. They need to, yeah, they need to start looking at the recycling and, you know, looking at innovation with it, which they are doing a lot of, you know, there's a lot of work going on with the, the, the fabric side of it and looking at, you know, recycling. And, but I think it's changing the public's, um, way of spending and buying you know and I know Maybe the coronavirus has done that though because I saw on the TV well, this morning that um April was the lowest um ever figures for clothing sales they dr- they were dramatically down in April so perhaps that tide has turned automatically and the public will um yeah. Maybe, or it might just go the other way, and then once they're able to, people will just go crazy again. And but it's getting the right balance because what worries me is if, yeah, because if that was to happen, and I know you know my heart's with Bangladesh, and that I want you know, because in Bangladesh, all of those millions I mean, there's there's millions within the clothing industry, and I think it's something like 70 odd 80 percent of the industry is clothing manufacturers, you know, so. What worries me is if it does if it does change in terms of not wanting the volumes, well therefore what happens to all of those people readers in the industry? Do? Yeah, and what did those people do before they farm the land? Well, I yeah, know. but then it's it, I know it's just such a difficult it's just such a difficult situation. Oh, to me the easiest yeah. thing would be the easiest thing would be instead of the buyers wanting to you know, I don't know, pay $3, $8, $10 for something that they're then going to sell for X amount, pay a bit more. Yeah. Pay a bit more for the product. Yeah. Yeah, and see the people behind the product. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I understand yeah. that. And if you could share one or two insights that will inspire others in their careers, what will they be? You have to want it. You have to love what you're doing. Yes. You know, you have. Yeah, you have. Yeah, it's pointless getting back again. You've got to have that passion, um, and that's probably where I struggled in the last year. Yes, um, you know, I've totally gone from clothing and fashion to cars. Yeah, and to be fair, though, you know, at the end of the day, you know, Nissan's not a bad car. I, I don't have one, but you know, it's a it's a good quality car. But then I do have on the other side of it, I've got the factory where we are, where we meet Rolls Royces. So that's lovely to go down to Goodwood and, and see that factory and the manufacturing of a Rolls Royce is amazing. 
quality um, oh it's just it's fantastic yeah unfortunately we don't get samples in the way that i used to get samples in the last industry um so no but again my passion is the is the industry that i grew up in so i have struggles but i think i've you know i've eventually turned a corner a couple of months a few months ago and was but obviously now hit with the coronavirus yeah. all of the you know all of the things that i would then want to start getting involved with in this new industry is on hold again but in terms of yeah but in terms of advice people i think it's just having the passion being um do you know looking at just constantly don't step back and and become complacent always think that there's room for change and there's room for improvements even if there's something that's been there for years don't be frightened to look at changing things because nothing stands still and it, it, it everything can be improved so never think that's the best something can be always look at ways of making it better that sounds really good i think that's very 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 valid because everything changes at such a fast pace nothing stays the same absolutely and you've got to be moving with the times it's so yeah. important yeah i think that's mm-hmm. very very valuable advice never mm-hmm. be scared to, scared to innovate and never be nope. scared to encourage innovation or change absolutely. And nah. to, always listen you know and just remember that you know the people that you're working with and the people that you know maybe a, a lesser level doesn't mean that what they have to say might be better than what you're actually thinking or doing at that time. Yeah, it's true. Absolutely. You want input from everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Because it's the team effort that makes the difference. Yeah. Absolutely. And I've all that's something else actually if you said that I've always said this in my team over in Bangladesh. I mean I had a t- team of about 70 or 80 people across sort of HR compliance, health and safety you know and you, people you know oh, oh Diane you're, you're really good at what you do no I'm only as good as my team yeah you know so if I haven't got a good team underneath us well I'm not going to be good either yeah absolutely. you know what you've got to have you've got to have that good team and I'm so lucky the team I've got now you know they're amazing they're, oh, they're fantastic that's so brilliant and if we think about fashion for a moment who would be your dream brand to work for if you could just pluck anybody out of anywhere? Who would you love to work for? Hmm. It could be something that hasn't yet been created. It could be something existing. Well, if you're seeing it's something that hasn't been created, it would be the perfect sustainable fashion brand that is going to um, innovate in terms of the fabrics um you know look at the sustainable the, the oh, I don't know. yeah just to be using fabrics and designs in a sustainable will, way yeah that will last that you know good quality and and design you know you can have you can have sort of staple items in your your wardrobe that you can have for years and years yes if they're made in a quality way if they're made in a with you know with beautiful fabrics you know, get rid of this wearing something once or twice and once you wash them, oh, you're never going to get them to look how they used to look when you put, you know. So it would be some a brand like that. Now, at the moment, unfortunately, because, you know, a lot of the brands that I have worked, well, manufactured for, I'm just not sure that any of them have got that total transparency. I would want transparency. I'd only work for a brand with transparency. However, if I look at, 
you know, and I don't, I don't shop in, in, in H&M very often, but what I like about H&M is some of the innovations at the moment in terms of, like, sustainable fashion. Or, or, yeah, yeah, so some of the things that they're doing, yeah, so some of the things that they're doing I'm quite liking. Yeah. Um, I'm loving Levi's and what they're doing in terms yeah. of looking at environmental and, and the wastage and the water. So I mean, yeah. the environment, absolutely. Yes, massively. If you look at some of the, the disasters and, the you know, there's lakes have been drained oh. um, of water because of the amount of water it takes for the, the production of the, the, the cotton and the dent. Honestly, it's That's just... But Levi's are finding a way of being able to produce and the amount of water they use is massively reduced. That's so that's that's a, a brand that I've sort of watched. But yeah, it's just a difficult question because I don't think there's... I, I can't think of a brand where there yet. that are totally there yet and that yeah. are totally transparent in their, yeah. in their manufacturing. And yeah, yeah I understand that. that but... We found it. Say we say the brand was well, say the brand is it's a new one that's coming up because I actually know of something that is exactly what you say that's in its very embryonic stage. Um, it's, it's incubating still, but I'm actually working with somebody else, another one of my candidates that's created something absolutely phenomenal. So that'll be a conversation well, going forward. Um, oh, wow, yeah. But in the meantime. Um, Say we find that brand, who would be the three people that you'd want on your team? And you can choose famous people, you could choose people in the industry, you can choose people that aren't well, in the industry. If I'm going to choose somebody in the industry, because if I name someone and then the other person that I didn't name then ends up being, why did you choose them? You know, so, you know, in terms of the design side, you know what I'm going to say? Anne Louise. Anne Louise, <laughs> big fed as she was known, or Anne Louise Pirelli. Um, as she is now known now with her married name, um, she was ju- she could literally what's the saying? Turn a pig's ear into a, into silk. What what's that saying? Yeah, you know, yeah, absolutely. you know, I would I would go into the showroom and see you know just piles of what on earth are all them garments over there and then I'd go in a few hours later and I'd want to buy every single one of them it was, because you know, she's merchandised it and made it all look amazing yeah. and outfitted yeah. everything yeah yeah but if it was in that industry yeah <laughs> um you know but then I mean oh again famous people well you oh, I don't know you'd want I'd want a bit of eye candy maybe <laughs> okay so maybe a taste of oh really yeah, okay. because he's tough as well. You need toughness. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you need somebody that would be tough, that would help, but tough in a good way. And I think he would have that, you know, that ability to to make people like him. And once that happens, he'll make people do whatever he needs them to do, which that would be oh, successful. Oh, wow. We've just created um, a whole new career for him. Yeah. Fantastic. Remember, well, I tell you who I really do. I don't, I don't follow celebs at all. No, um, you know. However, I'm not sure how I ended up with Kat Bond. Who? Um, Kat Bond, the okay. tattoo artist over in LA. She yeah. is amazing. Oh, wow. So she's gone from working in a tattoo shop, and yeah. she's so. I mean, honestly, she, what an artist she is. She's amazing. But she's now, you know, she's now 
ventured out now into her own brand of shoes and makeup and it's sustainable and she's so creative and such a fantastic person. Um, so I think I might have her on the team. Lovely. Um, that sounds yeah. good. That's nice yeah. to have us. That's your three people. Then, so, yes. Very good. I love that. Thank you so much. It's been welcome. My passion for that industry was very much looking after the people down there on the front line who are actually making all those products and people yes. forget, you know, the conditions and the, the levels you of the salaries. The and yes, the, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, people with their own lives and their own stories and their own difficulties, and you know, yes. and people just need to pay a bit more for the product. Yeah, and I think that's um, you know invaluable information to impart for people who are listening to this to you know consider when they are yeah. shopping and mm -hmm. to, you yeah. know, even if just they remember the real people that are making yeah. them garments. Absolutely. And, you know, for all of us to encourage the brands to really think about the ethical side of what they're doing yeah. and the impact on the planet and not just be chasing profit, you know, yeah. have an organization that's a, a manageable size. If you can, as long as you've got a decent living and the people that work for you uh, have got a decent yeah. living, that's, that's it. You know, don't be greedy, just mm -hmm. make it so it's manageable rather yeah trying to constantly chase the next profit level um yeah. this seems to yeah. be just be yeah and be up. and be reasonable with their approach yeah. you know again i'm probably going off on a tangent here but you know they put orders in for x amount of hundreds of thousands and then they end up they don't sell so then you know mm. they pull the plug on it and you've got all those you know come on just get a bit realistic and, and you can't do that yeah. but i also think yeah. the retail landscape is probably going to change following this so some of yeah, those no. retailers won't be around some of them yeah. will have had to scale things back they're going to have a lot of stock that they're going to need to offload so um, yeah. it's it's likely that it will slow down and actually what's happened on a smaller scale is there are lots of small manufacturers lots of small brands um, who are rising up so it'll be very interesting to see how all those little small brands do particularly yeah. online because that's really where they have an opportunity to be able to create mm -hmm. something without the usual overheads yeah. So yeah. let's hope that they take the place of some mm -hmm. of these yeah. retailers, but everything yeah. actually slows down and operates on a much slower yeah. scale. And bring, bring, bring some of it. I know it's already happening and there is lots of hubs around the UK where there is still um, product being manufactured, you know, but, and I always said this, I've said this for a long time, what goes around comes around and we will end up with manufacturing in a big way, I think, back in the UK. And maybe the coronavirus is when that might start happening. Because if we can make it here, why are we going to pollute the environment? Because honestly, you know, even just the shipments, a lot of it will come by sea. But then when the buyers are desperate and they start flying the product, yes. well, that's not helping the environment, no, is it? No, you know, not, absolutely. You know, and some, of, this, some of the, if they're still going to want the fast fashion, well, maybe the, the you know, the shorter lead time stuff, do that in the UK. Yeah. You know, so that can try and, yeah. Try and get a system together where you can produce it here. I think that's really, really good 
a really good note on which to wrap things up. Thank yeah. you. Because we could talk for hours, couldn't we? I know, yeah. we could talk for hours. But um, yes, we. I have. Um, I have another guest, so um, we'll do part two we though. Can we'll that. Yes, part two. Yes. Thank you right. so much for today. It's been brilliant. Yep. Yeah, and I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Diane draws us into the world of garment manufacturing and its recent evolution, telling us of the importance of camaraderie driven by leaders that nurture and empower their teams. She reveals how she embraced Bangladeshi culture during her secondment at Dewhurst to establish HR and compliance practices, ultimately training a local team who have successfully continued to guide the business. If you enjoyed this episode, join me next time when I will be speaking with Clemency Budenhagen about luxury fashion and her design career, working with luminaries such as Giorgio Armani, Calvin Klein, Karl Lagerfeld, and several others. If you are enjoying the series, hit the subscribe button to receive notifications on upcoming episodes, where you'll get to hear first-hand insights from across the global fashion and creative industries. 